So uh, a couple of additional things. So I think most of you know that this Friday is the 30th anniversary of the establishment of the monastery. Uh, this took place in the Crookston Diocese of Minnesota. Uh, Bishop Victor Balke gave permission to the community to be incorporated as a, a kind of provisional monastery, uh, as more or less diocesan right, I guess you'd say. Uh, and then we became formally uh, a monastery of the Benedictine Confederation in 2000. Uh, but in any case, it's 30 years since uh, our three founders began to live the monastic life together. And so we, we were the monastery of the Holy Cross because permission came on September 14th, uh, 1988. And... Um, uh, we believe that's providential, though I often joke with the brothers it would be great to be named you know, the Monastery of Perpetual Joy uh, instead of the Holy Cross, but uh, more of that later on. Um, and uh, I think many of you know I'm in the midst of something of a sabbatical. Uh, I've been the superior for 14 years, and uh, I took two weeks, uh, the last couple weeks, to be away, and then I'm taking five more weeks at the end of this month. And so I'm, and I'm trying to observe the spirit of the thing and not do too much work. So I hope you won't mind if uh, my conference today is on the topic of virtue and why it's important. I know you hear me talk about virtue relatively frequently, uh, but that's because no one else is doing it. <laughs> so I'm going to do it because I think it's important. Um, but also, uh, we're in the midst of... Uh, what we call strategic planning initiative in the monastery. And this means we're evaluating the, the work we do inside the monastery, outside, our relationship with you, our relationship with the scola that sings for solemn vespers and so on. And I think the real fruits of this are that we really are moving, I think, in a very positive way toward a, a, a better, more sort of institutionalized uh, set of practices to help form new oblates without running uh, oblates who are already oblates through the formation program every year. <laughs> right now we only meet once a month and my hope is to uh, establish a way to provide podcasts on the website as I think you know. Then Matt and I have already met and talked about some ways we can stay in touch with everybody on the different things we're doing. And also just in general to standardize more what our expectations of the oblates are and what your expectations of us can be. Um, so we'll be sharing more of that with you when I get back in uh, November. Uh, so let's see. Then Friday being this celebration, you know, if, if as many of you as possible can come for Vespers on, on Friday at seven o'clock, I'd be very grateful. It's kind of neat because all the music is going to be what's on our CD, our first CD. So we're basically recapitulating the, one of the very first liturgies we did with the Scola back in 2012 or 13. And uh, just, you know, every six or seven years, you, you repeat the same uh, the feast days on the same days of the week. You have to cycle through uh, the reconciliation of the lunar and solar calendars if we want to be technical about it. Uh, and then we're also going to have Solemn Vespers next year on the Feast of the Holy Cross. We're going to do entirely new music. <laughs> so it's kind of neat because you get a sense of just how much there is out there. But just in general, uh, this practice of celebrating Vespers is something we've identified in the monastery as, as an important part of our 
evangelization efforts. So if you can uh, help spread the news about that, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the, the document on the liturgy from Vatican II, says that every diocese should celebrate Vespers publicly on Sunday, meaning Saturday night or Sunday night. And as far as I know, and I'm corroborated in this opinion with uh, Bishop Perry, uh, there is no other place to go for song vespers in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Uh, there may be a couple places that do it from time to time, and there may be other places you can go to celebrate vespers recited. But if you want sung vespers, and if you want a big choir and everything, it's the Monastery of the Holy Cross. So tell your friends. <laughs> tell them to come here. It's, we have a professional level choir. We have uh, incredible music. A lot of it you, know, you can't hear anywhere else uh, because it only fits in the liturgy. You know, it wouldn't be sung at a concert. Lots of reasons to come and get excited about it. So that's that. Um, anything else in this part? No, I don't think so. So I think I can move on to my main topic. And as I said in my homily today, uh, I've, I've not said a lot about the scandals, uh, partly because, again, I, you know, I'm supposed to be on sabbatical. <laughs> and, uh, you know, lots of people are talking about it. Lots of people are saying good things. Lots of people are saying things that are maybe not as good but understandable. Uh, given the, the frustration that I think a lot of people justly feel in, in uh, the situation. Uh, but the other thing, as I said, is I've, I've felt like saying something, and then I thought, well, I want to make sure I know what I want to say. And as I was writing this letter to you, I still sort of feel like there are things I want to think through and pray through. But, but if you have questions before we're done today, I'll, I'll leave plenty of time. <clears throat> One of the things that seems really clear to me is um, that... Uh, it's important that we do three things. So you, two of the things we do hear about, if, you're, if you follow blogs and uh, news reports and so on. And again, I think one of the things that is, if I can call it a silver lining or something, is a real energizing of the laity. Um, uh, you know, to, to get this situation fixed, uh, and I'll, I'll talk more about this. In 2002, when the first wave hit us, uh, I was in the seminary. And I think like, I, I think like many Catholics, I just assume, you know, the bishops, they made some mistakes. They'll get this under control. You know, we've got our Virtus training. I've got, I sign on every month and I, I, I answer the quiz and all this. And, and uh, we're... we're uh, we're following the procedures, nothing, what else could go wrong? And then we find out, well, actually there was a lot that wasn't uncovered the first time. And there's just an unhealthy uh, kind of, uh, what's the word I want? Kind of culture that's grown up in seminaries and in the hierarchy. And uh, uh, what can we do about that? What can lay people do about that? You're not part of the hierarchy, you're not going to seminaries. Uh, so one thing you can do is pray and that's, that I, I don't say that lightly or just to kind of, it's, it's just as a convenient thing because I can just say, hey, go pray. And then I'm, I've done my duty. But it's true, it's true. We need to pray. We need to ask God to help us in this situation. We also need to speak out. And again, that is for each individual with your own conscience out of prayer to understand what you think you can do to help. Uh, it, it could just be you know, ex expressing frustration. I, I don't think that's illegitimate. Um, but for either of these to be effective, for our prayer to be effective, 
for our speech to be effective, uh, we have to be rooted in the practice of virtue. Uh, we, we have to live a life of genuine goodness. You know, uh, This is one of the reasons I think we, we can listen to bishops and not trust them because we question whether or not behind the words there's a life of virtue. And in fact, we're finding out that in some cases there was a lot of vice, to be frank about it. And so uh, when a person who is known to have uh, engaged in or abetted vicious behavior speaks, we don't trust him, <laughs> right? And so for us to speak effectively, we have to live lives that are, are you know, objectively rooted in goodness and virtue. And the difficulty is we don't really know what virtue is. Um, I've had to really train myself. The book that opened my eyes to this was uh, a book that I'm sure many of you have heard of. It's called After Virtue by a philosopher named Alasdair McIntyre, who's still out there writing and stuff at age 89 or whatever at Notre Dame. It was in writing this book uh, in part that uh, was his way of working out his entrance into the Catholic Church. Interestingly enough, back in 1981 or so. Um, and uh, one of the things that I'd like to focus on today is that we have a tendency when we hear virtue to think of a series of rules. It's like if I'm going to be uh, virtuous, I have to figure out a way to fulfill my obligations, which are usually understood as a bunch of rules. So I have to pay my taxes, I have to... Uh, uh, be nice to my spouse and my children. I have to be respectful to my parents. I have to go to church on Sunday. I've got to go to confession once a year. I've got to fast on Friday, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday and abstain from meat on these days. And if I follow all these rules, I'll be virtuous. And in fact, frankly, this won't work. This isn't, this isn't how virtue works. Um, but that this mindset is very powerfully a part of our modern consciousness I think is demonstrated by the fact that so many bishops, when pressured to comment on this, respond something like this. We're going to put in procedures. We're going to fix this problem by procedures, by a bunch of rules. And then we're all going to follow the rules and it's going to be fine. But we put in the rules. You know, we've, we've, and, and it's not like canon law was invented in 2002. You know, we've got plenty of rules as Catholics. Um, and one can can believe that, you know, sort of on a literal level, they've been followed. Uh, and then we get this problem of, you know, sort of parsing of, of words that we can sort of stay on the right side of the rule while sort of violating its spirit. But it's really the spirit of the rule that's important. And that has more to do with what virtue is. Um, those virtues are spiritual habits. Uh, they are habits of behavior. And, and they're more than habits because they're, they actually free us. So vice is also a habit, but it's a habit in the stricter sense because it's, it's a behavior that's hard to shake. It's hard to get rid of. We're so used to doing it that we, when we try to quit smoking or quit drinking too much, or if we stop and we want to try to um, stop going to the internet every time I have a free minute or checking my text messages every two minutes or whatever habit I've got, I find that it's really hard because I'm really drawn just sort of at a physical level to go back and do this same behavior. Or when, uh, if I'm in the habit of being impatient with uh, a loved one uh, who does something that gets on my nerves, 
If I'm in the habit of losing my temper, it's hard to stop. And there it goes again. <laughs> right? And so I'm caught in a vicious cycle. I'm caught in a behavior that I have a hard time changing. Virtues are like that and not like that. So virtue is a habit uh, that makes a certain kind of behavior normal for us, say being patient. Uh, <laughs> there are great stories of the desert fathers who, you know, um, there's one of a, a, an Abba who's praying and a, and a poisonous snake starts uh, climbing up his leg and he doesn't move because he's, so <laughs> you know, he's, he's so unafraid. Whereas most of us, you know, would not have that virtue of confidence in such a way. Um, you have desert fathers who, uh, you know, go out to get some water and come back and a bunch of robbers are running off with their stuff. And instead of getting angry, they, they say, hey, you forgot something. They bring like, the one thing they left behind. So this is um, what we see in the saints is uh, a freedom of action, a surprising creativity of action that's rooted in uh, a life of confidence, a life of faith, uh, a, a habit of choosing the right thing at the right time with the right measure. And there, you can't have rules for that because the contingencies of life are such that you can't anticipate everything that's going to happen to you. So you can't say like, well, courage means always doing X. Okay, so courage is one of the cardinal virtues. But you can't really define it because sometimes, uh, and, and if we're not virtuous yet, it's hard to know if somebody's virtuous. Because somebody might look courageous, but they're really rash. You know, they take too many chances. Somebody else might appear prudent to us in not engaging in courageous behavior, but they're really being cowardly and just covering up for themselves. How do we know? What's the mean between rashness and uh, cowardice? We learn this by, by attempting to approximate it and then evaluating whether we hit the mark or not. You might know that uh, the Hebrew definition of sin, uh, or what, what the word really means etymologically in Hebrew, is missing the mark. Right? So it's shooting wider uh, or, or too high or too low. And just behavior, righteousness, is getting it in the center, like doing the right thing again at the right time, with the right intensity, uh, as frequently as it needs to be done. Um, so uh, virtue can't be boiled down to rules. We need rules. We do need rules. Um, but v virtue is such a spiritual thing that there's no limit to what we're, we can achieve with it. There's no limit to love, for example. We can't love somebody too much. Well, we can't love God too much. Let's say that. Let's start with that. Uh, real charity, we can't love anybody too much, uh, you can't hope too much. You can be presumptuous, but that's actually different than hoping too much. Uh, but hope can become more and more firmly established in us, so we just act out of it all the time. Now, the flip side of what I'm saying here, maybe let me give one more example. Can you be too prudent? And I would say again, no, you can't. So prudent, prudence is one of the cardinal virtues. And it's the, the cardinal virtue that governs the other cardinal virtues. So the cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, and what did I, what did I miss? Fortitude. I, fortitude, courage, courage or fortitude. And once I get in the middle of it, I start forgetting. As I usually start with courage. Um, so prudence helps you to know what's courageous and what's not. 
But prudence, because it is a kind of wisdom ethic that takes in all of the contingencies and is aware of all of what's going on, uh, you get better and better and better at it, and there's no limit to how wise you can become and how prudent you can, you can become. Uh, because there's always more to learn. There's always a nuance that's left out. There's always a new person to learn about, a new personality that I'm dealing with in formation in the monastery, and I have to think about how to treat this person like an individual while rem remembering all the other stuff I know about what works and what doesn't work in formation. Now, the corollary to this idea that you can never have enough virtue, you can't ever get to a point, and again, this is one of the reasons why rules are so stultifying and infantilizing, because we feel like when we've done a rule, then we're done. We don't have to like, do more than that. And in fact, as spiritual beings, we, we have uh, an infinite upside of growth, but we can't get there unless we're aiming in the right direction, sort of aiming at fulfilling a bunch of obligations and then doing something that's not related, uh, doesn't quite aspire to the, the dignity that we have. But because we have an infinite goal, which is to share life with God, we're always falling short, okay? So this is one of the challenges of learning to think in terms of virtue rather than in terms of rules, procedures, legality, institutions, all that kind of stuff, is that even in our best day, we're not living up to what we could be living up to, okay? So that sounds kind of depressing in one way, but if it does, that's because, again, we... We don't think seriously enough about why it would be great to be virtuous. Um, so to achieve virtue uh, or to grow in virtue requires humility. It requires me to admit that I'm not there yet. I'm not at the pinnacle of human goodness yet. Uh, but also to know precisely sort of what, where I'm missing the mark, how much, where, what I should be aiming for. This means I need to have a certain openness to advice and correction uh, by people who know more than I do. So uh, one way to think about virtue that's kind of helpful is in terms of practices. So this is uh, McIntyre again. Um, because, and one of the reasons I found him so compelling is that uh, I, I read him because uh, when I was in high school, my best friend and I, uh, we had a, a, a very successful band and we played out and we, were, we got hired to play things. So we were, we were really full of ourselves. We thought we're gonna be stars, musical stars, because we're really good at this. But we decided that because we had great aspirations, we wanted to get a college education. We had great aspirations, but we were also realistic about the fact that most people don't make it in the music business. And so we wanted to have a backup plan. So we went to college, but we continued to play together and record together and all this. And then when we got out of college, we started out playing, but one of the things we had in common and that really excited us was we wanted to create a, a kind of music, the properties of which would actually help people to become good rather than, so one of the things we didn't like was the fact that so much popular music was demonized because it made people vicious. We didn't use the word vicious in those days, but it was sort of bad, bad music because it made people bad or it had bad messages and things like this. And there's some truth to this. And in fact, these were the 80s when we had Tipper Gore and a big controversy about labeling on um, musical CDs and things to warn parents about content and all that. So that's the background of this. But what does it mean to produce music that would make people good? Like, like does it mean just having good lyrics? Can you take heavy metal music and just substitute lyrics that are about God? 
and, and presto, it's different? Or is there something about like the beat and the kind of instrumentation and the kind of costuming that they use that you can't really imitate that and be virtuous? Uh, but we, he and I didn't have the language of virtue. And when I would read treatises on morality, that's like, you know, how do I stay awake? I can't drink enough coffee to read treatises on morality and, and uh, not just be bored to tears. And this is because in the modern world, if, if we've lost sight of virtue, that's why McIntyre's book is called After Virtue. And as a result, frankly, if I can be direct about it, we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> when we talk about the good, we don't know what we're talking about. We tend to, to think at some level, or experience at some level, that I'll be good if I fulfill the rules. And this isn't enough to aim for. We need to aim for a life that is beautiful, a life that is meaningful, a life that is flourishing. And so McIntyre in his book takes us down to sort of uncontroversial uh, levels of flourishing. And so I'll use music, which I tend to do because I know something about it. What does it mean to flourish as a musician? Uh, and let's just say that as, uh, as I've been telling the brothers lately, uh, if you want to know what it is to flourish as a blues guitarist, just in the sense of playing music at a certain level, uh, don't listen to me play because I'm no good at blues guitar. <laughs> Listen to someone like Buddy Guy or Eric Clapton, and then you'll, and if you get what they're doing, then you'll see that you can practice and play scales and all that kind of stuff, but the purpose of that isn't so that you can say, like, I played my scales today, but so that when you go to express yourself and, the, and you're, you're experiencing this musical moment, uh, the music comes forth and it's meaningful. It communicates something beautiful to other people. It communicates something about the human experience to other people. We can do this in any type of music. We can do this uh, just that most people don't know a lot of classical musicians today. So I, I could say, you know, uh, listen to Evgeny Kissin play piano um, or listen to Horowitz play piano, but most people haven't, so they don't know what I'm talking about. But it's the same idea. Horowitz can play scales better than I can play scales, but that's not the measure that we use to say well, that he's a better pianist than I am. We say that uh, it's because he's expressive. There's something true. You know, you hear somebody who plays a piece of music with, with meaning, and it, 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 you say, yes, that's right. That's right. That sounds good. Um, you, you, you can hear somebody play the same piece with a lot of technical facility, and it doesn't have any, doesn't move you. <laughs> You know, and uh, so virtue has to do with this something else, with this getting a sense of what it means to flourish as a human being. And human beings are spiritual. We're not just, uh, we're not machines. You know, uh, we're not, we don't just play with accuracy vis-a-vis -vis the metronome. Uh, and so again, it's not enough just to get these forms and institutional things down, even if we need them. Uh, and let's just say, let's, let's go back to the cardinal virtues now. Courage. Uh, to become courageous, I have to take chances. Okay, I, can't, I can't grow in courage unless I do some things that are beyond what seem to me to, you know, where I'm at now. And again, I can say this with regard to performing musicians. My mother uh, was a piano teacher. Uh, she's retired now, she still plays organ at church. 
Uh, and at recitals, she used to pass out buttons that said, uh, I played it better at home. <laughs> because all of her students would say this. And, uh, and why? Why? Because when I'm at home and I'm confident and no one's listening, it's easy. But when other people are listening, it takes courage to, to open up your heart and play a piece of music and uh, to, to you know, enter into that. It requires courage. And so uh, sometimes you, may, you hit a wrong note. <laughs> Or sometimes you, you go too far and you're too emotive. And then uh, if you have a good teacher, that teacher can say, well, I know what you're trying to get at there, but actually um, that, that one moment where you tried to get too emotional sort of stood out too much. It, it wasn't part of the, the overall thing you were trying to say in this piece of music. So try it again. And uh, again, maybe my own training as a musician is part of why virtue is so compelling to me. If you're a musician and you have a good teacher, you spend an hour a week or more getting criticized. Right? Like, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. That's better, but it's still not right. <laughs> um, you're rushing there. Stop rushing. Right? And, and you, you have to have a thick skin because if, if you don't listen to your teacher, you're not going to improve. Now, hopefully teachers are, you know, have your interest at heart and they're not just being mean to you. But they have to have courage, too, to, to say things that are hard sometimes. Like, um, I know you want to sing uh, Wagner, but you don't have that kind of voice. And you probably never will. So I'd like you to sing Rossini, even though you don't like it. <laughs> Can you do that? Would you, would you be willing to do that if you want an opera career? You know, a, a, a teacher who speaks the truth will we'll hear that in somebody's voice and give good advice. Say, um, so I was told when I was playing piano, um, you're good at Baroque. You know, you should really focus on Bach and Handel because you, you really play that well. Whereas when you do the romantic stuff, you don't quite emote enough. I, I was a math minor in college, so <laughs> Baroque music is sort of more, it sort of clicks with me a little more. Um, even if I like the romantic stuff, and, and sometimes it's a little easier. <laughs> Um, so, you know, that was good advice, I think, that I got. Uh, but this requires us to be open again to having other people challenge us where we fall short. Uh, one of the primary places, you know, we can do this is in our own prayer, in a daily examination of conscience. So again, let's just think about that. This is a good practice. If you were raised Catholic, you've probably been doing it most of your life. Um, you don't have to raise your hands, but just, you know, how many of us do an examination of conscience at the end of the day? Um, it's a good practice. It's a good practice. Now, again, the, the reason I'm, I wasn't asking you to raise your hand, those of you who would say yes to that, yes, I've always done an examination of conscience. For how many of you is it, I go through the rules and see which one I've broken? <laughs> right? How, for how many of us is it, you know, where did I fail in courage today? Where should I have been more courageous? I could have said something when I saw somebody at the L stop being abused and being yelled at, it was really an unfair situation. I, I could have just gone and stood with that person, but I, I chickened out. Like, uh, did, what, where today could I have been more prudent, but I just didn't feel like taking the time to think about that decision. So I just went with what I always do. And then I realized it wasn't very good. It's not that I've broken any rule, but that I could have been more present to that decision. I could have looked at more of the implications of that decision 
rather than just figuring, well, somebody will figure it out later on. <laughs> I'll just phone it in because I'm tired right now. Well, I, I could have done better in that situation. You know, so this is more of what we can do in terms of growing in virtue rather than in growing in our ability to name the rules and follow them. So uh, let's, let's talk about the other uh, cardinal virtues and how we grow in them. So courage, as I say, requires me to take chances. Um, we're reading at table a book about Edward the Black Prince. So he was the son of Edward III, and he's widely regarded as one of the great warriors of the late Middle Ages. Uh, he died before he could become king, and the dispute over the crown of France and the, the, the line of uh, succession in England contributed to the Hundred Years' War and eventually the War of the Roses. Um, so Edward, uh, in, in the, where we're at in the book, he's about is he maybe 18 or something like that. He's pretty young yet, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older. A little older, he's maybe 20. Uh, and his father sends him on his first campaign to lead a campaign into Gascony. Uh, you know, I'd have to ask myself, uh, at 20 years old, would I have had the courage to lead men into battle uh, in a foreign land? Uh, with, my, with the expectations of my father being that I'm really going to conduct myself with honor and, uh, you know, the kind of virtues that knights are expected to have in these days. Um, and probably what you find, uh, we haven't heard this exactly, but we're probably going to find that Edward the Black Prince made some mistakes. <laughs> that he, he, he overextended himself on some occasions. Like he, thought he, he thought he could get away with this military action, but it turned out the French were, were ready for him. Or that uh, he just didn't realize how, how fierce the fighting was going to become, and he ran away when he could have stayed. Um, I think it's also the case in this story that uh, on the, the other side, the Duke of Armagnac, who's supposed to be defending his, his uh, lands against Edward, is perhaps a little bit too, too cowardly. He's not really doing his job. And, uh, but in either case, then once you make the decision, then it's a question of following up and evaluating. So how did I do? Uh, was it really the case that I was afraid and therefore I didn't do what I should have done? Uh, then I have to think ahead next time and prepare myself to do something that's hard. That, that I don't feel like doing. And, and before I go on to the other cardinal virtues, I need to say something very important about this. Another difficulty of learning virtue is that when we're trying to acquire a virtue, we have to act as if we already have it and we don't feel like we have it. And so we feel like we're being posers and we feel like we're being inauthentic. Uh, and someone can say like, wow, that was really courageous of you to do that. And you can say, well, I didn't feel courageous. But that's actually the point. If we're growing in virtue, we're always going to feel a little bit out of our depth, or maybe a lot out of our depth. Because there's always going to be a gap between where, where I'm actually at and where I'm hoping to get. And again, I think any of us will experience this. If you start a new job, uh, you're going to be asked to do things that you don't know how to do. And uh, it's going to be a little bit frightening at times, or it'll be you know, a little bit uncomfortable. But you just you get in there and you do it, even if you're not personally feeling like this is authentically me because you figure once you do it a few times it'll, it will become habitual oh, okay I've done this before now it's okay but there's that gap always between uh, how I feel about my own adequacy to a situation 
and what I'm aiming for. And because of that, it's easy to say like, well, I'm just not courageous, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, but uh, coraggio, as, as my voice teacher used to say. Uh, just, you know, get in there and do your best, and then we'll see, we'll, we'll evaluate afterward what we can do better the next time. What about justice? Justice, uh, uh, this is the one I usually tell the brothers is the hardest one for us. What is it exactly? And again, I think part of the problem is we, this is the virtue that we most associate with following rules. Justice means I don't break any laws, right? That is sort of how we, or we submit to the system, the justice system, and whatever they decide is this, this, and that, and they'll go based on precedents and a bunch of rules and arcane things that they all have studied in law school and all this. And, uh, but the, the idea that one would be like Solomon in judging, like to have sort of the inner sense of the situation, what's fair to everybody, like that's not what we usually think of as justice, but that's what the virtue actually is. So sort of knowing, looking at the common good, the kind of life we're trying to live together, and then saying, well, what's fair for everybody in the situation? Everybody probably is going to need something a little different from everybody else. And I find, again, in, in monastic life, St. Benedict says that in the distribution of goods in the monastery, you shouldn't give everybody the same thing because different people have different needs. Some people need more stuff. Some people need more time off. Some people need to sleep more. The tendency I found in monastic life is to say, like, everybody should get the same thing because that's what's fair. Because that's a rule. Uh, everybody gets one slice of bread and peanut butter in the morning. <laughs> uh, and and St. Benedict actually is opposed to this. He says very clearly, he doesn't like to legislate for other men's sustenance because some people need more food than others. That's just how it is. Um, so justice knows how to give people what they need and, and uh, how to give people not more than they need or less than they need. Justice also has to do with looking at what people contribute to the common good. So uh, some people who are in authority uh, represent the whole, okay? And for this reason, it's important to have ways of showing respect to an abbot or prior. Uh, and again, this is difficult for some of us, but to the mayor, to the governor, to the president, uh, to lawful authorities, because they represent the whole. And so by, by a certain honoring of the person who represents the whole, I build up the solidarity that I have with those who are subject to that authority. This is difficult, uh, and it's difficult for the reasons I said in my homily, because, uh, because we don't have virtuous persons inhabiting places of authority, it's hard to show them the respect that their position deserves. We'd like to give them the respect that their character deserves. That's harder to know. Uh, so, uh, but justice, it, it requires things, for instance, in monastic life, uh, like celebrating someone's birthday or name day. Okay, so uh, more traditionally in monasteries, we would celebrate on the Feast of St. Edward, Brother Edward, on the Feast of St. Timothy and Titus, Brother Timothy and, and Brother Titus, if we have one, but we don't. Uh, why is this? It's like, ah, uh, you know, forced fun. Why are you making us get together and eat cake? You know, uh, we do this every year. Well, you know, um, I think it's easier in families with birthdays, right? Especially with, with kids. 
Uh, why do we celebrate a kid's birthday? Because we love him or her, right? Because we, we, we want to say thank you for being with us. Like, we're, gra- we're really glad you're here. We're glad you're a part of us, right? And we have to keep saying this because this, again, is part of justice because all of us benefit from being together and all of us contribute to what it means to be us, right? And so we have to honor each individual in the group somehow. And um, it's, in some ways, it's best to do that in some institutionalized way so that it's, it's, we have a clearer sense of the justice of it. If, uh, it doesn't mean we can't do spontaneous nice things for each other, but if we leave it up to uh, individuals to kind of judge for themselves about what's just to give each brother in the community, it's going to tend to happen that, you know, brothers with certain kinds of personalities are in a good favor. Uh, and, and it's easy to miss some of the contribution that, say, the seller does, gives to the monastery because he's locked away in his office all day writing checks and making phone calls. And oftentimes his relationship to you is a little stressed because you ask him for money and he says, well, I can't give it to you right now. Or he says, like, well, I know you want, uh, I, I had this happen. I asked a brother to estimate how many cords of wood we need for our our wood stove for the, the, the winter, and he asked for 19 cords, and I'm gonna give him 15. And I, I'm the seller in the monastery. And you know, you don't like to have to tell somebody, you know, I don't think we need that much. I know you want it, but I have to say no. And again, parents, you're familiar with this phenomenon. Yes, I know you want that, but you can't have it. <laughs> and so it's easy to, for those persons who have to make the tough choices not to be friendly to them, <laughs> right? And it's easy to be friendly to the brother who, who is always nice to you because he, he doesn't ever have to tell you the bad news. And so it's, it's difficult to maintain a sense of what's just because actually honoring the person who keeps the finances in order is really important. And in fact, in, again, in monastic tradition, it's the abbot and the seller who usually get special celebrations. Uh, and uh, the abbot on his name day, you usually get uh, you know, to eat some meat and have some cake maybe some alcohol, but the seller's day is usually an important one too. So, it's, so finding ways to honor the persons who contribute to the whole, even if it's a small amount, uh, but that requires us to exercise the, the uh, virtue of justice. And again, at the end of the day, I can ask myself, did I treat everybody today according to, to what their position merits you know, in my life? Did I, did I honor my spouse in the way I'm supposed to? Did I treat my children with justice? Did I, uh, did I treat my employer with justice? Right? Did, I, did I show respect to my employer in the way that his position merits? Because if he weren't running this business, I wouldn't have a job. Right? I wouldn't have this job. And again, this job means us. And so, and again, I think you can hear, this is tough because most workplaces aren't run as if the common good is <laughs> in, in, in the deep sense is what's important. Uh, so justice requires us to take responsibility for the common good and to celebrate those who contribute to it. How about temperance? Uh, this one, again, is a little easier to understand. It's kind of like prudence in the sense that I think we understand that the rules, uh, it's harder to come by rules in temperance. The temperance requires us, because we're spiritual beings, again, but we're, we're also material beings, uh, we have to prioritize the spiritual. And this means bridling uh, whatever pleasurable experiences we have in terms of our bodies so that they, they contribute to the building up of a spiritual unity. 
in us. Uh, because I think all of us know that uh, pleasure uh, can be addictive, right? And so it's, it's important that we not give ourselves over to too much pleasure because it warps the way we think about other things. So, you know, the most obvious example of this, which I like to use because uh, um, uh, a couple of people in, in my life, very, uh, persons who are very close to me, are alcoholics who are recovering. Uh, so I've been to a lot of AA meetings with them. Uh, you know, what happens is you get used to the pleasant effect of alcohol and the way our bodies are set up, you want more and more of it because you, the, the amount that you've had isn't enough to produce the, the pleasant feelings that you got the first time. So you need to add a little bit, add a little bit, and then it becomes something where you're thinking about it all the time. And all of my thoughts then, you know, this is one of the things um, one hears at these meetings, you know, when I, when I would be on the road traveling for work, the first thing I'm doing as I get into town is scoping out where the liquor stores are. So this is how the mind is being transformed by the body. You know, the body is craving this thing. We see this in all kinds of addictions. My body craves this thing, and so I'm, my mind is thinking mostly about that <laughs> rather than other things I could be contributing to. But this is the case for all kinds of lower-level problems, too, just say in terms of my own health, diet, right? So uh, to contribute to the common good, it helps for me to be healthy. And so it's important for me to uh, understand that if I just eat everything that's pleasant, <laughs> I, won't, I won't be healthy. And what you find is when we become temperate, when we become virtuous, we'll actually start to prefer the foods, the amount of sleep, that actually allows us to function well. We'll actually delight in being healthy rather than in just the sort of momentary pleasure that we get from uh, eating whatever, you know, fill in the blank, whatever is uh, available today, and there's lots of it. So temperance requires me to, to bridle uh, sensual desires and to sublimate them so that I can cultivate spiritual senses and spiritual desire. Uh, so that one, I think, is easier to see that it doesn't submit so well to rules. You can't really say, like, um, I'll be temperate when I eat exactly this amount. Because it kind of depends. Like, how much physical exertion are you involved in right now? Uh, or, you know, are you sick? Uh, are you getting older? What gender are you? How old are you? Dave? Didn't, uh, I forgot, didn't, uh, I remember from one of CS Lewis's, uh, that was talked about a gluttony of fastidiousness. Yeah, right. Yeah, like that's so. Virtue always partakes of the mean between extremes. Uh, I think the the one exception again being charity in certain instances. So as I, I've mentioned, with courage, an excess of courage is rashness, like taking too many chances. Uh, 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 what's the opposite of excess? Uh, uh, what's that? Deficiency, Deficiency is cowardice. Uh, an excess of justice would be, um, that's a tricky one, but it would probably be something like, you know, an over-reliance on, on rules or something severity. like that. What's that? Severity. Severity, yeah. Yeah, severity. And laxity would be a deficiency in justice. In temperance, uh, too much temperance is, is fastidiousness. So, for instance, you can fast too much. Uh, you can't, uh, I would say, you know, to the, 
Puritanism partakes of a kind of fastidiousness that's too much temperance, as it were. Most of us are afflicted by not enough temperance. <laughs> you know, just as I, I think most of us probably in our lives are, are more inclined uh, toward cowardice than toward courage. Uh, and and not, not, I think that's not necessarily a constitutional thing in our case, but our, our culture doesn't encourage us or show us what courage really looks like. And so it's harder to know um, when to engage in courageous behavior. Um, so, but yes, uh, that's, that's a fault against temperance is fastidiousness. So thank you, Dave. Prudence. So here, this is, a, this is an interesting one, and this relates back to one of the difficulties of, of the scandals that we're, we're finding out about. So Brother Timothy and Father Edward can attest to this. I've been, I've been talking about these issues for a long time. They didn't just come up in the last two months. So who knows, maybe there's a kairos here, and maybe... All the effort I've, I've done, put into uh, trying to figure this out will come in handy now. Um, as I say, I think one of the things that we'd like to hear from more bishops, um, let, let me just give a couple of uh, contrasts. When Cardinal Bernadine was accused of abusing a minor, this was um, 93, 94, somewhere, do you remember that? He was interviewed by a hostile reporter. And his response to this charge was, I've been chased all my priestly career. Now think about the difference between that response and uh, I don't remember. Or, or uh, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, did, I don't remember that, that this went beyond sort of something consensual or something, you know, sort of parsing of, of legal, legalese. What Cardinal Bernadine referred to was a virtue, a, a subdivision of temperance. Uh, and you just don't hear that language. I mean, how many times in all of these scandals have you heard people speaking out forcefully about chastity? When the Me Too movement was getting going last year, I was talking to one of my sisters. And she said, my gosh, what are we going to do about this? Uh, you know, how do we know what to do? And I said, well, it's easy. We used to have something we called chastity. <laughs> we have a, who talks about chastity in the, in the movie industry? But we, you know, we've given ourselves over to R-rated movies and, and R-rated television shows and things like this. And um, that's not changed. You know? So how do we, uh, we... We shouldn't expect that people are going to act chaste. <laughs> Um, but, but we actually have a vocabulary for this in our tradition, in the Western tradition in general. Um, but but um, uh, I want to say a couple more things about prudence. So, again, uh, we would like to think that when faced with the difficulties of this situation, that the hierarchs in the church would be men of proven prudence. So we, we see a situation, we recognize who's responsible, we recognize that it's time to act or it's, or it's time to wait, uh, and, and then we act when it's time to act with the right amount of force, with the correct decisions, with the correct penalties on those who've done something wrong, the correct redress to those who've been wronged, all that stuff. So this is prudence. But again, I would just ask, how many of us ever hear about prudence, that this is actually something we should be cultivating. Uh, wisdom, insight into uh, the, the correct 
way to act. How many of us instead tend to hear more talk again about procedure, uh, regulations? Um, I, I could go into a lot of deep, uh, sort of deeper philosophical problems with how we've gotten to where we are, but I'll spare you. <laughs> but prudence uh, is this overarching virtue that governs all the other ones. And uh, it's, it's really the preeminent virtue of rulers along with justice, right? Uh, so justice is knowing what to apportion to everybody. Prudence is knowing how to, when to act and with what force and application. And again, I think we can see um, one of the things about virtue is that they all hang together. If, if I'm deficient in courage, I'm going to lack prudence as well. Because when it's time to act, I might be afraid to do it. And again, we've seen this over and over again. Decisive action that could have solved a lot of problems 16 years ago wasn't taken. And it's hard to know. Was it a failure in courage, a failure in prudence, a failure in justice? Probably all of them. Probably a failure in temperance. So this is, this is where I really want to get at. <laughs> and that is, again, how do we participate in the healing? How do we... Uh, witness to the faith. And as I said at the beginning, we, we need to, all of us, uh, will benefit from growing in virtue. Um, and so here's another problem. Why, was, why weren't things said? Because in a lot of cases, uh, it's, it's hard to preach about chastity if I'm not chaste, right? So it's hard to preach about justice if I know I'm not just. And so St. Benedict says about the abbot that in correcting others, the faults of the brothers, he himself will be cleansed of his own sins. And part of what I understand that he means by that is um, in formation. Now, I've taught the course on chastity twice. Uh, I think we may even call it celibacy. I forget what it's called. But, you know, we read books on, on uh, why does the clerics are celibate, why religious are celibate. And, uh, and then what are the practices that, that make this a virtue rather than just a legal requirement of being a priest, okay? Um, how do I know what to do with uh, temptations against the virtues? Because if I give in too often and, I, and I'm not in the habit of growing in virtue, how can I correct other people? How can I give them advice? How can I uh, come forward and condemn certain types of behavior as really being harmful to others if I'm somehow compromised by my own inability to act or my own involvement in some cases? Uh, so if we are going to pray well and speak out with the kind of truthfulness that we need, uh, it's important for us to purify our own behavior with the help of God's grace. And this requires virtues. Um, Last, last thing I'll say about this, and I'm going to invite some questions because I, I promised to do that. Um, let's see, just went out of my head. It's another sort of foundational thing about virtue. Um, well, maybe it'll come back to me, but um, yeah. So I'll tell you what, I'll stop there. And if I remember what the last thing I was going to say, uh, and perhaps Father Edward and Brother Timothy will remember because I talk about this stuff so much. But any thoughts about uh, this, this challenge? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm just got a practical question. Okay, sure. Uh, a lot of, I don't want to call them like secular types, but maybe 
nominal Catholics or non-Catholics mm -hmm. are asking me constantly because I'm like the token Catholic and yep. some of the normal Catholics and Benedict. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think of the issue of clerical celibacy in light of this? And then is it, is it I, don't, I don't really have an opinion father I mm -hmm. refer to you, but is it, uh, would you think it's just a capitulation sort of to, to change change the way it is in order to solve these, these issues? Would it be sort of just like an expedient move or something like this? Yeah, yeah. Everybody hear the question? Okay, so the question is, uh, in light of the scandals, a lot of people are asking, you know, whether we need to maintain the discipline of clerical celibacy. And how should we respond to that? Or how do, what do I feel about it? I think it'd be a shame to make a change under this kind of pressure. Because in fact, if, if uh, clerics had been celibate, we wouldn't have the problem. I think if they've been faithful to their vows. And the idea that, that we can't, that, it, that it's like constitutionally impossible for people, ah, that's selling the human race way too short, way too short. You know, um, uh, perhaps, perhaps there could be some, some uh, uh, creative thinking about this in terms of, you know, maybe we could have different grades of clerics who are, uh, say, in the Eastern Church, sure. the bishops remain, remain celibate, but that means they come out of the monasteries by and large. Um, but uh, uh, I would say, given what we know now about seminary culture in so many seminaries, uh, I'd like to try getting the seminaries to teach chaste behavior <laughs> and then see what happens, because you might actually attract men who really desire this, who, who see it. Well, one of the things I, I say in the celibacy class, which I think might be helpful for you to hear, we tend to teach chastity as a negative thing rather than as a positive thing. So for instance, chastity is like, ah, there are all these things you could do that would be really fun and really pleasurable, but you can't, because I said so, right? And um, I've heard there's, there's a, a blogger who, whose writings I've been reading recently, his name is Chris Damian, and he says you, you can't have a vocation to know. So one of the things, again, is celibacy is usually presented as uh, a denial of some part of our humanity, and it's not. It's, it's, the, it's a freedom, you know, it's a freedom. Uh, all of us are called to be chaste, and it's the freedom to treat others as people and not as objects for my own pleasure, right? So um, I'd like to see us, you know, give a positive modeling of what chaste behavior really looks like. And, um, and who knows, you know, maybe in a generation or two, there'll be a bunch of young men who say like, I want that, you know, that, that, that'd be great because I want to be able to serve Christ and his church in holiness. And, and then they won't go to seminary and get corrupted by it. <laughs> should, should that exist in the laity as well, somewhat? I mean, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, I talked to all these young men I know, and I know a lot of some. I'm a privileged to know a lot of seminarians. Mm -hmm. Some of them have left for some of these issues that have mm -hmm. come up. But shouldn't they be asking themselves, "Could I be celibate?" Or, or something like this? Or how do you phrase that question, Bob? Well, I would say it's a vocation for one thing. So all of us are called to be chaste. Number one. So all of us are called to exercise uh, our sexual energies in such a way that they point to their goal, uh, which is the, the unity of spouses and procreation and rearing of children. Uh, but there's, there's a spiritual meaning behind all that, a kind of fecundity of human relationships in general that will be built up by all of us learning how to bridle those energies and channel them into serving one another 
into friendships, into challenging one another to grow and flourish. So that's the first thing. Um, but in terms of celibacy, it's, it's always been a vocation. So it's something, one of the things we want to ask when men come to the monastery is, is God calling them to this life? And one indication is that they feel moved to embrace this, this discipline. So, um, uh, so, and again, that's a difficulty is that um, the way we go about discerning whether someone has a vocation to the priesthood is colored by all kinds of, um, I think, questionable assumptions about how we discern the movement of the Holy Spirit rather than what a person wants to do, which are two different things. Hopefully we want to do what the Holy Spirit is asking of us. But sometimes you have to do things that the Holy Spirit asks that you don't feel like doing. <laughs> and uh, so, so I think we have to work through these questions, which I, I don't know how seminaries do this, frankly. Um, the, the text we tend to use uh, is written by an, an Opus Dei priest, so it's not, he's, he's not sort of part of the hierarchical structure in a strict sense. So, other thoughts? About, about anything I've said. I mean, it could be about celibacy, it could be about anything. Well, I was thinking about the prudence, it's like, can't be prudent enough. I think with prudence, the excess would be scrupulosity. Yeah, at okay. At the point where you go by rules where you think you're afraid to go too far, like, or, you know, like you're, you know, you worry you haven't parked your car properly if it's 9 feet 11 inches away from a fire hydrant. Mm -hmm. You're technically bad in the rules, but it's, mm -hmm. or you have to have things exactly, or you're just afraid, so bound up on violating the rules, you don't move beyond that. Yep, yep, yeah, so there's an over-focus. So again, in all virtue, there's a target we're trying to get to. Uh, but being human, we're always, there's always going to be some slippage, both because we can't see the mean exactly where we're at, but also become, because there are just contingencies that you can't factor in entirely. So, like you say, um, in, in Chicago, you can usually get away with a certain slippage in parking laws that you can't get away with in Green Bay, where I grew up. Because uh, there you don't have so many people trying to park. And if you just get too close to a fire hydrant, they can say, like, you didn't have to park here. Right? They can give you a ticket. Whereas in Chicago, you hope that the policeman will say, yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, Lincoln Park and there ain't any place to park. That's just how it is in this neighborhood. Whereas if you park anywhere, you're going to be with a bear sticker on it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I realized... I, Dumb me, I, I took the train and bus everywhere on my travels these last two weeks, and I, I, uh, one of the brothers has a, a blood brother who's a big Packer fan, and he gave us this, this Packer uh, sweatshirt, and I was figuring since I'm wearing it at home, I could wear it, but then I was thinking, but I can't wear this to, to Minneapolis. <laughs> That's not gonna go over very well, so I had to just like strap it to the outside of my luggage. <laughs> Or for musical analogy, trying to just play the notes technically and overdoing it sounding like Liberace every time you play. Yeah, yeah. Again, there's 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 always this slippage, and I think you're right. Scrupulosity is a kind of excess focus that that's, <laughs> looks like prudence, but it isn't really. Mm -hmm. um, Charlie, you wanted to say something? Yeah. Well, I've often been asked recently by friends and family, uh, how can you still be Catholic after uh -huh. these disclosures? And this new yeah. So here's, I'll, I'll read from my letter to you. <laughs> this is a time to focus on getting our ecclesiology right. Uh, the church is the entire body of Christ. This includes the saints in heaven, 
the souls in purgatory, and the church militant on earth. So reducing the church to the present hierarchy is an easy mistake to make, especially as a shorthand way of describing what our problems are right now, but I encourage you to avoid it. Uh, the Fathers of Vatican II made the strong point that the laity are an intrinsic part of the Holy Catholic Church. So uh, again, we have a, a habit uh, at some level of thinking the laity as persons who approach the church, meaning the hierarchy, for sort of spiritual consumer goods. <laughs> and if you can't get in the Catholic Church, go somewhere else. Why, why would you stay here? Like if, uh, you know, if, if, you're, uh, if your brand name uh, something or other you know, it turns out that the owner is shooting big game in Africa. Like, you should stop going there and go to some other restaurant. <laughs> but the Catholic Church isn't like that, you know. It's, it's, it's not a service organization in that way. Let me back to my text. Uh, so not only are the laity an intrinsic part of the Holy Catholic Church and the majority of the members, uh, but you fulfill a role that we monks can't. You live in the world. So you have an evangelical call to demonstrate the truth of the gospel in your lives. Uh, and we, then we support each other. First, uh, as monks, we have a close connection to the church triumphant in the liturgy. Uh, and so you can partake of that with us to remember where we're going together. We're, we're on our way to heaven. We're on our way to the kingdom together. So when you go back out into the world, you're equipped with that truth. But then we also pray for you. Uh, but then, uh, you know, the, the documents of Vatican II are very clear. Uh, you have a really important thing to do in witnessing to the truth of the gospel. And that, that's slightly different than witnessing to the goodness of the hierarchy, <laughs> which, which we don't, we're not required to witness to right now, you know, if I could put it that way. Um, so I, does that help? I, I don't know if that would actually respond to the, your questioner. But uh, we wouldn't leave the church because we're baptized into it. You know, I mean, just on that level. Uh, and um, so, yeah, that, but that's, that's sort of where I'm at right now. But I, I, again, I really understand people who are publicly announcing, I'm not, I've had enough of this. You know, I, I, it would be foolish of me to criticize them publicly because, you know, um, but for our, our own work, you know, I would focus on this. The church, one day, we're going to look back on this together. And those of us who have hung in there, uh, endured the shame of the situation for the sake of Christ and his holy bride, the church, God's going to take that into account. You know, And, and uh, think of all the persons who've suffered for the church and how we celebrate them. And, and, and we want to emulate that. Okay, so now it's our turn. So... Other, other thoughts, questions? I think maybe Joan or somebody here. Did you have, I see a hand over here. No, okay. Yeah, Cherokee. Uh, you briefly mentioned how in the Eastern Church the mm -hmm. celibacy situation is different. I, I'm not familiar. Could you briefly explain <coughs> how, how it's different? Yeah. So um, the, the history of celibacy in the church is, it's quite involved. You know, the church has been around for a long time and there have been dis different disciplines at different times. In my opinion, and this is the opinion of the Western Church, the practice of celibacy for the clergy is apostolic. Um, but it's, it's always been hard. It's always been hard. 
So uh, there have been various reform movements throughout the church's history to reinforce what, what is understood as this apostolic discipline. Two key moments. There was a council in the East, I believe in the late 7th century. Uh, this is at a time where the Eastern and Western parts of the Roman Empire culturally were, were separated from each other. And so it was very difficult for bishops from the two sides to meet up with each other. Uh, a group of uh, Eastern bishops got together and uh, ruled that uh, it was permissible for deacons and priests to be married if they were married first, before they were ordained. If you're ordained first, then uh, you're not eligible for the sacrament of marriage. Um, but the, the West was not a part of this decision. However, again, it's really important to understand that in the Eastern churches, and this includes Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, um, the bishops are still understood that they have to be celibate. And what this means in the East is that, uh, and the other thing is monks have always been celibate. Like that's sort of the definition of a monk or a nun. So a consecrated virgin or a monk is a, is a woman or a man who has renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's sort of the definition. So what this means is that in the East, all bishops have to be monks because the, the rest of the clergy are usually married. Um, in the West, uh, there was, there was wise, widespread disregard of the discipline of celibacy in the 10th century, which was a really rough time. 10th century, you want to, you want to talk about tough times. Um, I won't go into any detail, but I'll just say in the 11th century, uh, because of the influence of the Benedictines uh, coming out of the, the Confederation of Cluny, uh, there was a renewed emphasis on clerical, clerical celibacy in the West, and a series of popes who worked with the bishops to establish this discipline. And this got a real kick with the Council of Trent, because again, around, during the Renaissance and the Reformation, the requirements of clerical celibacy were, were honored in the breach oftentimes. And, you know, it, it was happening that you had popes who were giving, you know, big areas of land to their sons who were bishops. You know, this was going on. And uh, so with Trent, again, there was a renewed emphasis on celibacy, especially in training men in the seminaries, which were established at that time. And, um, but this became a, a kind of a rift between the East and West uh, during these centuries, because there, there just was no real cultural contact. Um, so it's, it's possible, again, even in the canons of the Western church, it's possible for married men to be deacons. It's possible for men who have been married to be ordained a priest, normally if, if they're widowers. Uh, so, but it's also possible that you can have priests who are married who are coming from Eastern churches, or in some cases from the Anglican communion, who are ordained priests and continue to be married. So, so there are exceptions even in the Western church. But it's a very complicated issue, and this is another reason I would prefer not to open it up to examination right now. I'd rather do that, if we're going to do it, from a position of strength and peace, <laughs> and not under strain and, and fear. Yeah. I, I think right, I agree with that, because I think the question of celibacy really doesn't have much to do with the, what's going on now. Mm -hmm. the, the issues that have come up, the kind of behaviors that are being discovered are would be considered depraved whether they were celibate or whether whether they were married or not. 
Yes. So this this celibacy um, has really nothing to do with going on right now. It's mm -hmm. it's something to latch onto, but it's yeah. not certainly not addressing the issue that the kind of behaviors mm -hmm. that priest with priest and priest with seminarians and priest with children are wrong. Period. Mm -hmm. It's depraved, mm -hmm. and it should have been found out in the character before or during mm -hmm. formation. And the question of celibacy might answer um, some other issues. It might open it up to more men, but if the character of those men aren't <coughs> continuing, you could still have a married priest who's doing inappropriate, inappropriate things, right. period. Yep. So yep. I, I don't, Think that's I don't think that's really germane to what is going on, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's been discovered. Yeah. And again, part of what we're discovering is that not only are these sort of sinful tendencies or, or behaviors not addressed when people come to the seminary, they're actually in some cases in, inculcated. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I saw a little bit of this. Uh, I, I don't think the seminary where I went was was a huge problem, but there were there were uh, seminarians who were sort of openly living in questionable arrangements and I wasn't there enough to like raise the issue it's also I think part of the reason that the brothers didn't send me full time <laughs> you know I, I, I took most of my classes online and I just went for summer classes um, uh, so that my formation was really taking place here and it wasn't sort of uh, farmed out to the seminary uh, I think the other thing yeah. we have to do is we have to pray for our good and holy priests. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. right now, that's just got to be the thing in our prayers most. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand praying for the healing of, of the victims, but when you think about things that are ha were happening, are probably still happening in the seminaries, uh, my heart breaks for the, um, for the seminary who came in with a, a good, clean heart and, yeah. and was damaged. Mm -hmm. And damaged as as well as someone who was sexually abused by the mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I did actually do a lot of my traveling in habit, and um, uh, in part just to just to experience this, you know, because I think that's one of the difficulties is that uh, a lot of people in society will tar all priests and religious with the same brush, you know, and. Uh, uh, you know, depending on the situation, I, I didn't want to call a lot of attention to myself, but at the same time, um, I don't want to shy away from the, the realization that this is just part of what we have to live through. We have to continue to witness that the truth of the faith itself isn't actually changed by the failures of, of even substantial uh, amounts of uh, persons in the hierarchy. Uh, so. I, and I think when you talk about people asking about how you can still be Catholic, I think I haven't asked that <laughs> mm -hmm. to be asked that point blank, but um, I mean, I think I would have to respond. It's a good thing that my, my faith is in the, the tenets and the beliefs of the church mm -hmm. and not in the men who are in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And then you just have to hold on to that because people will understand that you are holding on to your faith, you are mm -hmm. holding on to what you believe the Catholic Church teaches, not necessarily the way it's run or mm -hmm. how, what's going on in the higher. Yeah, and I, I personally think uh, 
I, I mentioned the responsibilities of the laity. I suspect and I kind of hope that you know, what we'll see is, it, some of this was done in 2002. There was a group of lay people who were supposed to review all these cases. And most of them quit because they weren't getting the information that they wanted. Well, I think maybe, maybe we could try something like this again and just get the truth out there with responsible, you know, virtuous people who are, are known to be persons of integrity, who can name what the problems are, and uh, there would be some mechanism to hold the hierarchy accountable so that we can start fixing things and getting things put back into place. Um, but it'll probably be a, a while before um, the, uh, uh, before there's a feeling like the persons at, in the episcopacy are, are, we know that they're men of good character and virtue. It's probably not going to happen in the next couple of years. <laughs> so we just have to live with that. Um, now, um, I, I must uh, excuse myself and go to praise God in the Holy Liturgy. Uh, but I thank you very much for your being here. It's, it's, let me just say, it is such an encouragement to see so many people come out. And uh, things are going to continue to develop slowly in terms of the uh, things we're trying to put in place for formation. But we are working on them. And I thank you for, if, if you could pray for me during my sabbatical, I'd be very grateful. I hope to come back uh, rejuvenated and energized and we can, we'll see each other in November. I assume we're planning in November for uh, um, oblation, but we'll, we'll be in touch with you about that because uh, we just have so many people asking to join right now and it's very exciting. And uh, we'll be working with you all on that as we go forward. So let us ask uh, Our Lady's assistance as we go forth today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. Thank you.